Now, at the end of the service last week, uh, I promised you something. I promised you that today's service was going to feature the greatest sermon ever. I also promised that it would not be given by me or Robbie or really anyone here at Oasis. Now, some of you weren't surprised by that fact, which is a different subject entirely. But I want to explain kind of what I meant by that. We spent last week on Easter Sunday looking at the awe-inspiring impact of Jesus and uh, the, what he has done to our world. It's really never been the same since he was here. And in truth, there's really not many spheres or facets of life that Jesus has not influenced or molded in some way. When you think about it, even our calendars, even the way we divide time has been influenced as a direct result of Jesus. We literally divide time before Christ and after Christ. But even beyond that, Jesus has shaped the way we see things uh, in history, the way we look at compassion ministries, the way we think about education, and even the arts. However, the number one goal Jesus had on this earth was not just to help us grasp what it was like to live in culture. His number one goal was to help people understand this thing he kept calling the kingdom of God. Everything he did, everything he said, everything he modeled seemed to be able to want people to follow him under the rule and reign of God. He described it, Jesus did, as that sphere where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So our primary mission as Christians, surprise, surprise, is not to go to church every week. It is not to vigorously defend the Bible. It is not even to start ministries that assist people. Although all those things are very good things in and of themselves. Our primary goal as followers of Jesus is to be kingdom bringers and bearers in this world. So, as we start today, this involves a very intentional decision on our part. And that decision is, will we make Jesus the ultimate teacher and leader of our lives? I want to highlight this by going back about a hundred years in time. A hundred years ago or so, uh, actually a little more than that now, a group arose who said that Jesus was really nothing more than a teacher. They said he was a good man, he was a wise teacher, we should pay attention to his teaching, that his teaching represents like the highest uh, ethical standards, uh, moral living, that kind of thing, but that he was just a teacher. So there was one group that arose that kind of started espousing that. There was another group, however, that said Jesus is not just a teacher, friends. Jesus is much more than that. Jesus is divine. He really is the Son of God, and He really did live, and He really was crucified, and He really did rise again, and He really did ascend to be with His Father. And it was a really, really good thing that this second group kind of emerged. And so you know, Oasis kind of aligns ourselves with that group, that Jesus is more than just a human being. He is the Son of God. And it's a very good thing that that group came up. However, 
What I want to say here is that in that process and in those discussions, a really bad thing happened. The bad thing is that Jesus' teaching ministry kind of got lost in the shuffle. And his role as a teacher was tremendously de-emphasized. And the assumption kind of came about that the only reason Jesus came was to die on the cross and that what kind of happened before was just kind of filler. (laughs) In fact, some within the group that said Jesus, you know, was teaching and his most famous teaching, which we're going to start looking at today, uh, is they started saying it's really not that relevant for today. And it just kind of got tossed aside. So in the process of a really good thing happening, saying that Jesus is more than human, that he is divine, his teaching got neglected. Now this is a very important thing, and we're going to talk about this throughout this series. Seeing the kingdom of God come to this earth, more and more and more cannot be done unless you receive Jesus as your teacher, your guide, your coach. You see, during the years of Jesus' ministry, believe me, he was not just treading water waiting for the cross to come. His teaching ministry was central to his mission and his ministry. But in addition to that, it was because precisely because his followers had learned that they could trust Jesus as a teacher, that after the cross and after the resurrection, that they would be willing to put their trust in him as Savior. In other words, what I want you to know is there is a bond that cannot be severed between Jesus' teaching role and Jesus' role as Savior. And here's what would happen. People would follow him, and they would listen to him, and they discovered, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He can really be trusted. So after he died and after he was resurrected, it was natural for them to say, hey, I'm going to make him the Savior and Lord of my life. And this point really needs to be honed in on here this morning. What Jesus said is as important as what he did. Jesus came to be our teacher. Now listen, he's more than that, but he is not less than that. And it is central to who he is and what he does. Now, I said all this to say this. One of the things that used to confuse people who would listen to Jesus is that he would very rarely just give a list of things to do. You know how some people, when they teach, it's kind of A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, 4. Very rarely does he do that. Occasionally he does. Occasionally he would just kind of pop it out there and say, love God and love other people with all your heart. But that wasn't the norm. He doesn't do that very often because Jesus, being a master teacher, is after something more than education. Jesus is after transformation. In fact, there's a great verse in Luke chapter 6. This is kind of a pivotal verse for this series. Some of you do well to remember this verse. It says, a disciple, when fully trained and when fully formed, will be like his teacher. So essentially what Jesus would do is he would teach against the backdrop of something going on in his life or culture. And very commonly he does this, and we're going to get to this now, he would very often teach against what is called general prevailing assumptions. Okay? General prevailing assumptions. Uh, some of you may read Newsweek magazine. Some of you may find that uh, a little beyond your liking. 
But there's always a little section at the beginning of Newsweek magazine called CW. Anybody know what that means? Conventional wisdom. There's always a little section called conventional wisdom. And what Jesus would do is he would give a teaching that was designed to show the falsity of conventional wisdom, in other words, the wisdom of this world, as opposed to the wisdom of the kingdom of God. People often would think about it uh, this way. When we think about the kingdom of God, we think about heaven. We think of wanting to make the cut so that when we die, we'll be sure to end up there, right? We want to think that maybe one day we'll fly away with Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus comes along and he teaches this very different kind of message. He says, listen, the kingdom of God is near. He talked about a kingdom where people could experience God right now in the present. His message was never about dying one day and going to another place. His message was about living in the kingdom. And he comes and he shows people and he tells people, here's what it looks like to follow me right now. Now that's a great message, but people kept asking, okay, Jesus, what does it look like? What does life look like for a person living in the kingdom? After you die and you're resurrected, what does it look like to live word and deed every day of our lives so we live in the kingdom? So people began to want to know who's invited to this party? Who's in, who's out? See, in Jesus' days, here's how spirituality was defined, and it's really defined that way in a lot of places today. People thought that they had figured it out. They thought they knew what it was like, and secondly, they thought they knew who was in and who was out. They were absolutely sure that they knew that there was a very small, select group of kind of superstars of religion. They kind of set the expectation of what God and what righteous living was all about. Think of them kind of like the LeBron Jameses, the Beyonce's, the spiritual Kim Kardashians of the world, okay? They're like the top, the most popular, the most well-known. And as a result, the average guy or gal, the average bricklayer, the average restaurant owner or baker or farmer or blacksmith, all of these people would look at these spiritual elite people and they would say, I could never be that. I am never going to get into this kingdom of God. I will never wear a robe and tassel like these guys. That is one A-list I will never make. And the fat, sad part is, is that the spiritual elite looked on their side and they ate it up. They almost took like a perverse delight in making sure that everyone, everyday folks like you and me, knew that they would never measure up. Now, this is important for this whole series. One day... Jesus decides to teach, and he's touching people and healing them and loving them, and he decides to go public with an explanation of exactly what life looks like in the kingdom. He wanted people to know who was going to make it and who was not going to make it to the party. And Matthew's gospel records this amazing picture it is known, this particular section, as the Sermon on the Mount, and many people, many, feel like it truly is the greatest sermon ever given. 
It is the sermon, as some of you will remember, that contains the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer. It contains uh, the challenge to love your enemies, the golden rule, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. And today we're going to begin a journey to look at these words of Jesus. And we're going to place ourselves on that mountaintop for just a moment, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. If you can just imagine in your mind, thousands of people have gathered there. They want in the kingdom. They want to be healed. They want to be touched. They want to be taught. But more than anything, they want to come to the party. And the question in their mind, every single one of them, is do I have what it takes? Am I invited? And there's this tension building. There's this little bit of anxiety running through the crowd. It's kind of like the high school student waiting to know, will they get asked to the prom or will they go with their friends again? <laughs> will the phone ever ring? Or the person who's waiting, if you ever waited for a job interview call after you've had the interview and you wonder, did I get that dream job or not? Everybody's sitting there waiting to know what is it going to be like for me to get in? What do I have to do? So Jesus steps up. He opens his mouth. And this is how he begins. There's no opening joke. <laughs> There's no warm, fuzzy illustration. He doesn't tell any personal stories about his life. He just says one word, blessed. And the religious leaders kind of just, <sighs> he's going to talk about me. He's talking about me, guys. Even the people in the crowd probably looked over at these people and they're like, ah, oh, he's going to talk about them. See, they know that the word blessed refers to sacred delight. And it's sacred because it comes from God and it's a delight because it's unexpected. It's like when you bring banana pudding to the church picnic. By the way, that is expected. <laughs> A good translation of the word that is used here, the word blessed or blessed, is the word happy. Now, we have such a hard time with this word in the English language because we kind of think of the word happy and we think of like um, a little round dwarf guy, right? Yeah. Just somebody who hangs out with Snow White. We think of just, oh, just happy, don't worry, be happy. We think of, you know, the video we saw. Just kind of be happy. It's kind of a shallow thing at times we think about. But that is not what Jesus is talking about at all. He's talking about something down real deep in your soul. A happiness that comes despite your circumstances. So they know when Jesus starts using this word happy and this word blessed, he's talking about divine favor. And inside Everyone thinks they know who that word is describing, but that word is not describing who they think it's describing. Jesus looks out over this multitude. He sees all these people that he's healed and he's talked to and he's loved on. And in my mind, I see him kind of looking at people and just saying, let me draw out some kind of object lessons here. I kind of see Jesus saying, hey, you over here, yeah, you, the one with the funny hat on. Blessed, 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Believe me, friends, jaws would have dropped. They thought the ones who got into heaven were rich in spirit. They thought the ones that were invited to the party were those who'd met all the spiritual criteria, jumped through all the spiritual hoops. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those of you who don't have anything in your pocket but limp balls, those of you who morally, ethically, spiritually speaking, don't add up to much, people who've colored outside the lines their whole life, the rule breakers, the spiritually broke, the destitute, the bankrupt, the overdrawn. He said, listen, those people, if you're in that group, you're in. You're invited. <laughs> and all these religious leaders are sitting back there going, what? Are you kidding me? They had never one time in their life thought that they were spiritually poor. Humbling experiences are probably some of the toughest experiences in life. I may have told you this a long time ago, but I was on a staff at a church one time over uh, on the West Coast, and every year they had this huge Easter production. I mean huge. It was like elaborate and drama and music and live animals inside the, the, the auditorium. I mean, it was just incredible. And because I couldn't act or sing, I was assigned to serve in the sound booth kind of tech area, which I didn't know that was a mistake too. And the people on the stage who were on the stage doing what they did, they had access to this thing we call an intercom system. So what happens is they could talk to people by headphone to people backstage like in our sound booth area and the video room. And they did that so that everything would kind of run smoothly and they'd give cues and et cetera, et cetera. So one particular night of this production, because it went on for several nights, the senior pastor decided that he needed to tell something to the sound guy in the booth. So he picked up on the headset, didn't have a clue what he was doing, and he couldn't figure out how to get the intercom on so he could talk to people. There's a button on the side of the intercom, on that particular one, that blinks red light. It has a red light that blinks to let people know, kind of get their attention, that you need to pick up the intercom. So the pastor is pushing the button over and over. Everybody's red light is flashing, but no one can hear what he's saying. And the reason is because he forgot to push the button that would allow him to talk. So he's pushing the button, and the worship leader, like the main guy over this whole thing, leans over and says, somebody's trying to turn this thing on, only the stupid idiot can't figure out how to do it. And then he said, turn it on, stupid, turn it on. And just before he said that, the pastor figured out how to turn it on. And in one of those moments, that's just so classic, this guy was so sharp, the pastor responds back. All he says is, this is stupid, and I'd like to talk to unemployed right now. <laughs> A very humbling experience. He is not there at that church any longer, in case you're wondering. See, it's hard to admit 
that were spiritually at zero. Jesus looked around that crowd and he knew what people were thinking. He knew that there were people who lived with shame and embarrassment and guilt. And Jesus says, listen, all you guys who don't know the Torah, all you people who don't know the difference between Genesis and Isaiah, he said, you're people who are mortified if someone would call you to pray in public. He said, the doors of the kingdom are open. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It seems like a natural human response to question God in times of suffering and loss. From Job who asked, why didn't I die at birth? To the psalmist who said, why, O Lord, do you hide from me in times of trouble? To Jesus himself who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we are consumed by mourning, when we're confronted by the reality that suffering seems to be baked into the very fabric of human existence, our world grows cold and dark, and for a time it can seem as though God is gone, and we are left with nothing but a question, the question, why? To this question of human suffering, Jesus provides an answer, but perhaps not the answer we're looking for. You see, the cross and Christ crucified does not give us relief. It does not remove pain. It does not help us escape loss, and it does not extract from us our mourning. Instead, what the cross provides is a God who chooses to join us in our darkest moments and partake in our pain. As one author put it, our tendency in the midst of suffering is to turn on God, to get angry and bitter and shake our fist at the sky and say, God, you don't know what this feels like. You don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how much this hurts. The cross is God's way of taking away all of our accusations, excuses, and arguments. The cross is God taking on flesh and blood and saying, me too. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Shrugging passively and quietly retreating is often what we think of when we picture somebody being meek. And yet these are the people that are supposed to inherit the earth. Oftentimes we read or we hear the word meek but we understand it as meaning weak or lazy. However, instead of confusing meekness with weakness or laziness, Christ teaches us to see meekness as courage. Courage like that of Christ, who in the garden committed his life to the will of God rather than to his own will. While the disciples chose to sleep, Christ chose to seek the will of God. It is not weakness to surrender, but rather it is strength. For it's precisely when we realize that this world is not our own, that God invites us to recreate and plant a new garden as we inherit this new earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All my life, I've thought this verse about hungering and thirsting after righteousness meant desiring personal holiness, yearning to live a life in obedience to God, and that would be a good desire to have. But as I read this verse really carefully and thought about the context, I began to see a broader meaning. Jesus can't be talking about only personal holiness. The word translated righteousness means doing the right things, conforming to what is right or just, and meeting the expectations of God. But Jesus' listeners, when he preached this sermon up on that mountain, and Matthew's readers would have realized that no one could possibly achieve righteousness on their own. They would have understood as the prophet Isaiah said, we've all become like one, is, one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. And we need to realize that too. Our only hope of righteousness is the kind that comes from God through faith in Christ. It would be arrogant to interpret this beatitude as a promise of perfect righteousness to anyone who works hard enough. So it must not be our own personal righteousness that we're yearning for, but God's righteousness. And what would God's righteousness look like? In this whole passage, this whole sermon, Jesus is talking about the already but not yet kingdom of God. These Beatitudes are not just practical guidelines for successful living, but a declaration of blessing to those living faithfully in community acting like the coming kingdom is already here. In our time, just as it was in Jesus' time, some people go to sleep hungry while others have more than enough, and that is neither right nor just. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are not just longing for individual personal piety, but they're longing for God to set things right, and they're committed to doing the right thing in the meantime. The promise they will be filled is a sure thing. God will indeed set things right. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When we think of mercy, we often offset it against the concept of justice. Justice is getting what we deserve according to some law or some code. Mercy is getting a reprieve. If I'm driving down the highway at 80 mile per hour in a 40 mile zone and I see a flashing light behind me, I want mercy. But the question is, are we willing to extend this mercy to others. In today's world, there seems to be an emphasis on making sure everybody gets what they deserve, getting even. Almost every day we hear some report about road rage. Somebody so upset because you cut me off. I want justice. 
or we even hear reports of parents getting into fights at Little League games because some injustice has occurred. And then there's war. War where nation goes against nation to enforce some idea of justice. And we become so hardened to this that we have developed a term, collateral damage, to describe what happens to innocent victims. This is a picture of collateral damage. And we could ask the question, who was right? Who is just? Or we can just say, what can I do to make it better? It doesn't matter who was right. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I think of the pure in heart, I think of brave heroes or people who strive to live righteously or follow all the rules or um, give their confession every time they do something bad or just try to live the right way. Although I'm not sure that this passage excludes that concept. I'm interested in whether it might mean something more than that. The pure in heart, it does connote living rightly, but what, it, what does Jesus say about that? Jesus chastised the Pharisees for all their righteousness and their holiness and all their rules and regulations. And so they asked him, what are the commandments? What is the law? What should we do? And he said, love God and love each other. He condensed it to those two rules, those two things, those two guidelines. He filtered all out the other stuff out and left those two things that we have to do, love God and love one another. I chose this photo because I feel like living rightly and loving God means refocusing our attentions and intentions back on God and who God is to us. We call that in our theology of worship, we call that theocentricity, where we center God back in our lives. We practice that. It's what we do. We refocus. This photo is a, is a cathedral called the Sagrada Familia. And these great cathedrals, it's one of thousands. It's, it's innumerable, the number of cathedrals. And they're created to refocus our physical eyes and force us to look up when we walk in. They're created to make our eyes go straight up to the top. The purity of our hearts is best served when we are completely focused and constantly changing and adjusting our focus on who God is. In that sense, not only will we see God at the end of our lives, but we will see God in each other and we will see God in the world around us. And when we walk out of this room, after we refocus our attention on who God is and put God at the center of our lives, we will see God in the world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What is peacemaking? To me, Jesus teaches and exemplifies what it means 
to be a peacemaker consistently throughout the Gospels. Here are a few examples that often help me. Number one, turn the other cheek. In Jesus' day, slapping someone's cheek was a sign of making them inferior to you. It signified one's superiority to the other. The act of turning the other cheek is a confrontation of a violent display of aggression, which is often met with more violent behavior. Jesus calls us to confront violence with nonviolence. Number two, give up your coat. A lender would often take your coat as a sort of collateral until the debt was repaid, but Levitical law required the creditor to return it to the borrower at sundown so they would still be warm at night. In a roundabout way, lenders began to sue borrowers for their shirts and undergarments instead so they wouldn't have to return the coat every night. So in this moment, Jesus' commands would leave the borrower naked and exposed in the courtroom while also exposing the greed of the lender. Jesus calls us to confront greed with selflessness. Number three, go the second mile. Roman soldiers were able to lawfully compel Jews to carry their packs for one mile. Jesus encouraged going a second. Jesus calls us to confront humiliation with graciousness. Number four, give, it, give to the one who begs. We often count coins or ridicule those seeking help. We even question the authenticity of their requests. Jesus calls us to confront needs with resources, not speculation. The picture behind me is one of many from the protests following the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. Police officers fired on the crowd of protesters, killing 846 civilians. 26 policemen also lost their lives during the political turmoil and national unrest. In this photo, I see a woman overcome with concern. I see the eyes of a man filled with devastating memories, maybe remorse. Whatever the greater context, I think of those who were convicted in their hearts to act passionately in protesting for change and I think of those who found their own convictions of their duty to protect and serve to be just as strong. I think of the lives lost in countless situations such as these, and I am reminded to pray for those who hold unshakable convictions, that they would find a deeper conviction to become peacemakers regardless of their cause. What is peacemaking? To me, it is the act of practicing transformational initiatives wherein we are separated from the world into Jesus and then directed back into the world where God is working. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And finally, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This picture is actually a painting by Nicholas Sarek. It is remembering the 21 Coptic Christians who were beheaded by ISIS in Libya just a few years ago. In case you did not hear that story, in 2015, ISIS kidnapped 21 Christians, lined them up on a beach, and beheaded them, and then released a video of the execution for the world to see. It is a stark reminder that Christ's followers really are still being persecuted in some cases martyred for their faith. 
This is really hard for us as Americans to comprehend because the idea of really suffering or being persecuted for our faith seems ancient. It seems like it's so far removed from our version of Christianity. When you read stories like this and you look at paintings like this, it kind of stings because I think about the kind of stuff I complain about. The air conditioning's too cold on Sunday morning and we didn't have ham and cheese croissants this morning. The worship songs weren't my favorites today. And we're reminded that blessed are those who are persecuted. What I want you to know is you don't have to have your life threatened or be imprisoned or be persecuted for your faith. Certainly that's happening. But what may really destroy our faith is not the cruelty of persecution, but the problem of convenience and comfort. Jesus says the true citizens of the kingdom know what it's like to struggle. They know what it's like to face opposition. They know what it's like to be shunned and shamed and disowned and abandoned. And here's what I want us to know as we conclude this first week. For years, I taught the Beatitudes as if Jesus was saying, listen, if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. And what I'm coming to understand is I think what Jesus was really saying to all the people that day is, you're just invited. It's not if you do this, then this will happen. It's just blessed are you who are poor in spirit, and blessed are you who mourn, and blessed are you who need mercy. It's the poor in spirit. It's the mourners. It's the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It's the ones who need mercy, and it's the pure in heart that are invited into the kingdom. And the question this morning is not, do you have what it takes? The question is, will you take what has been given to you? Dallas Word writes in The Divine Conspiracy, a book very much about this sermon. He said, blessed are the physically repulsive, blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, the misshapen, deformed, the too big, too loud, too little, the bald, the fat, and the old. For they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. They are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts, the dropouts, the burnouts, the broken, the broke, the druggies, the divorced, the HIV positive, and the herpes ridden. The incurably ill, the barren, and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. The overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents dying in a rest home. They are the lonely, the incompetent, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead. It really is true that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And that is precisely the message of the Beatitudes. And Jesus says, please don't wait until you're dead to think that you're going to experience this. The Sermon on the Mount, as we come to the table of Jesus this morning, was written for people who are going through their life upside down. And Jesus just says, 
I want you to know what life looks like when you live right side up. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about stuff like relationships and retaliation and anger and what do you do with your stuff, all that stuff that comes into your life. Jesus is going to talk about prayer and about whether you should give up or should hang on. We're going to get serious about making Jesus the teacher, the teacher as well as the Savior of our life.